and we are going through the book of Colossians. When we finish the book of Colossians, unless the Lord radically changed direction, we will be going and beginning the book of Genesis and just starting to walk straight through. And I'm real excited about that. Um, with that said, again, we're in Colossians chapter 3, so you'll always know where we'll pick it up unless something really strange happens. Uh, we'll just pick it up where we left off. So, And that puts us in Colossians 3. Verse 17 was sort of where we left off, and so I want to sort of pick it up there. We'll read our text once. I'll kind of wait for my wife to head down here. Yes, thank you, sweetheart. Read along with me. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter against them or toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, do... um. Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as man-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Now whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive a reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ, or the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give to your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Pray with me, if you would, please. Lord God, I pray that your word would burst open and come alive today. Lord, that for every one of us, this would be the most personal and intense and beautiful uh, just worship time, Lord, in your word. Lord, that your word would just speak to each one of us individually at our areas of need, Lord, and corporately as, uh, as a body, as a fellowship. Lord, I pray you would continue to build this flock. Lord, it's your church. It's your flock. You bled and died for them. You are their Savior, the Redeemer. And we were told, Lord, we were bought with a price. And therefore, we are not our own. And we should glorify you as a result of that with our bodies, Lord, with our own beings. And, and so, Lord, I pray that as this speaks to us, that, Lord, you would minister right where we're at, God, and that whatever you want to do today, that you would do it. Redeem every second. Don't let any time be wasted. Don't let it appear long for the matter. Don't let it be long, but don't let it be shorter than you want it to or longer. Lord, rein my tongue to you. Attach my mouth to your heart. And, Lord, let you just speak, we pray, and give us ears to hear and receptive hearts. Make us moldable clay in your hands now. So, Lord, I pray that you immerse me in your Holy Spirit, that I would disappear and that you fill me to overflowing. That, Lord, I would, that you would put me on as your jersey and do great and wondrous things. So, Lord, now we commit every second of this to you. Be exalted upon it all. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say this morning, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Let the Bible always be your authority, your final say. Let the scriptures always be that for which you test and hold all things true to. Now notice in our first verse of this, now again, we've been looking at this new man. We've looked at 
getting rid of the old man, getting rid of the old wardrobe that comes with the old man, putting on the new man, uh, putting on the wardrobe that's appropriate for the new man, and then seeing how the word of God should be uh, dwelling in us profoundly and how that the how the word of God dwelling in us should be something that should cause us even to the point of song how the peace of Christ should umpire in our hearts and now from that now he goes and he sort of puts things into these do all categories notice the two statements the first of them in verse 17 where it's no matter what you do do it in the name of the Lord Jesus and then notice then the same thing in verse 23 no matter what you do do everything heartily so somewhere in all of this now he sort of encapsulizes in between those texts or masked around those texts is sort of very practical personal identities. Certain ways, he's like, you know, he could just say, do everything heartily. And unfortunately, because we're naturally sinners, there's a part of us that would go, well, then I'll just party hardy and I'll just go and sin hardy. And, and, and God says, well, wait a minute, let's redefine everything. Now that we've kind of put the man, the individual, now let's build the society. And that's where this starts. The whole idea of doing something in the name of the Lord gets so taken out of proportion that it's in one extreme or the other. On the one extreme, Jesus in Jesus' name becomes the abracadabra, sort of the verbal credit card you slap down to just try to get whatever you want. Now, Scripture doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, this is how God addresses that issue in Acts chapter 19. He says that there were these itinerant preachers. Now, understand they were PKs. They were priest kids. And there were seven of them. And these seven priest kids, raised in a priestly home, so they know the smell of incense, they know the rituals and the routines, decided that they would become itinerant exorcists. Now, this was before the movies came out of that, so somewhere down the line, they just thought this would be a really cool thing to do. Now, Paul, on the other hand, Paul's preaching Jesus, and as Paul's preaching Jesus, there's clearly power in the name of Jesus Christ. And any time there is a person possessed, and the Bible makes clear, people are literally possessed. Whether you like it or not, possession is a reality. Now, not every weird person out there is possessed, but you, if they're weird already, and somebody starts being really weird around you, and you're a Christian... Give it a shot. What have you got to lose? They're already looking at you weird when you started. And if you're like, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out. And they look and go, what was that about? Well, then maybe that's an open door to preach the gospel. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, at least you're not trying to blend in with them at that moment and say, I am pretty cool. I'm already weird, but I'm not from here, so I can be weird. We had that on our way on our way out towards Sicily. There was a man talking to himself, and he was in he was in a really agitated, animated conversation with himself. I don't think he thinks he was talking to himself, but clearly it was enough for me to jump into it right away. And he just kind of looked and walked on his way. You know, I mean, I, there wasn't room for me in his conversation. But but consider this: these seven kids. We don't read how old. We just know that they were sons of of this priest. They find a guy possessed by a demon, which apparently doesn't seem to be very difficult in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. Um, I don't think it's very difficult here at least to find enough wacky people out there to give it a shot. Walk down to Camden, you see, you, you, you're going to just, you know. Um, it doesn't say, by the way, possessed people can hold jobs. We know that from Paul and the girl that was possessed that was the fortune teller. So it isn't just like they're just so lunatic that they can't function. It seems like they're sort of a coming and going to a lot of it. I won't build a lot on it. I just want to get the biblical on it. And these seven guys, seven guys, find one guy possessed. 
And they say, we command you in the name of this Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out of him. No, the demon speaks back and gets cheeky with these seven guys. And he says, Paul, I know. And Jesus, well, I know him. But who are you? And then in, in, in all of a sudden it says this one man possessed by the one demon jumps the seven guys that were PKs and they run out of that place naked and bleeding. Now, I'd like you to consider the fact what that would be like to be the dad. You're in the house and you're just kind of getting ready for the priest things of the day and you're all seven of your sons come walking in clearly beat up and totally naked. Now, which part of you thinks normal day for the boys? Oh, what are they up to today? You know? But the point that God makes in all of it is, look at Jesus' name, though has all the power, there has to be a relationship involved in it, or there's no power in you. As a matter of fact, the Bible says even the word didn't benefit those who knew it because they didn't mix it with faith. Now understand, if you've got a relationship with Jesus Christ, all of the power of eternity dwells within you for God's will, not your own. But if you have no relationship with Jesus, slapping his name down actually only proves that you are that much more ignorant of who he is. Now, this whole in Jesus' name thing, now understand there's a lot to be said about it. And I won't develop a lot because it's, it will take us from the, at least the gist of our text. But consider this, that David, when he stood against Goliath, says, you come at me with sword, spear, and javelin. David was very aware of what was going to be gunned at him. But he says, but I come at you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or, I'm sorry, in the name of God. Now, that's really important. Because David's power, his, his moxie came from the fact that he stood to represent. Now, for all of the things that we can say that David blessed in the name, or the prophet spoke in the name of God, and all of these things in the name, the most profound place, and I believe it's one of the most perfect things about the book of Esther, is what we learn from the book of Esther in regards to it in chapters 3 and 8. And again, don't just believe me. I'm summing these up so we can get to our text and be clear in it. But in two different cases, a person who was not the king comes to the king for a decree. And as he goes to make this decree, the king says, go write that thing in my name. Though the king didn't write the decree, though the king didn't send the decree, though the king didn't invent the decree, one thing was surely... That because that decree was in the king's name, all of the power, all of the authority that was enlisted from that king was wrapped up in that document. All of the girth, all of the backing, all of the character and nature was all in that or supposed to be in that document. And might I just say that if you're going to do something in the name of Jesus, you were doing it in the might of and the authority and the power and the power of the kingdom that it represents. Now, there's two sides to that. One is you can't do something that's completely opposite of the kingdom and the nature of that kingdom, and say you're doing it in Jesus' name. The very name God didn't call just Jesus Bob or Mike, though those names are nice if you have it. The name Jesus Yehoshua means God saves. And anything I do that is opposite of God, my Savior, is opposite of doing something in the name of Jesus. If I'm going to do something in the name of Jesus, I have to be doing it in the clear understanding that His kingdom is a saving kingdom. It is a kingdom that saves. And it doesn't just save, it saves anyone who will call on His name. It tells us in Joel, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved in Joel 2. 
That is fundamental. And if I do something for the purpose of driving you away from God or condemning you instead of giving you the opportunity to cross the bridge of the cross, I'm not doing it in the name of Jesus. And this becomes the fundament to all of our text here. This is our hinge pin into these specific small little vignettes of character and nature, or I should say of assignments. Listen, if I'm going to do anything and everything in the name of Jesus, I know that I do it in the character of that kingdom, but also then in the might and authority that that kingdom provides. And if Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, according to Ephesians 2, above every principality, power, might, dominion, and anything that is named, then if I stand representing Jesus as the ambassador of this kingdom, then I stand in that might, power, and authority as well. Now, when Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail, he wasn't joking. And when people start speaking this crazy, aggrandizing the evil as if somehow it's the bully and the righteous are like this little wimpy kid, fearful to stand against them, we're not taking our doctrine from the Word anymore because the Word says that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Now, there's a reason to tell us that. That even the people that John were writing to, or the people uh, which John writes in First John, he's writing to people who are intimidated because the world culture around us, well, it still has a lot of girth and media coverage and a lot of money. It just doesn't have the power of eternity behind it. Now, hear me out. Every kingdom has a set of standards, a set of priorities, and a set of limitations, if you will, to the evil of man. The Bible says that man is basically evil. Not just basically, he's evil. Not just like, and it isn't like he was born good, but got tweaked somewhere down the line by a society. All society is, if you think about it, is the offspring of a bunch of people being people. And I am a fun, I'm, I'm, I mean, fun, well... That's up to you to decide. But I am a firm believer that man is as evil as you let him be. And society will dictate the limits of that man's evil. And that society will be established by the kingdom that actually established it. Now consider this. In the 40s and even the 30s, 1930s, there was in Germany a kingdom that we could call the Nazi kingdom. That Nazi kingdom had a set of standards our set of priorities, and in those priorities, the first thing that was, was sort of propagated was the issue of finances. Everything, all of history got changed because it wasn't people-based anymore. It was actually financially based. And if it's financially based, then we start saying, well, then you need to get yours. And that was sort of the platform that, the, that these, this minority party jumped on was, you can get yours. If you elect us, you'll get yours. It's sort of a chicken in every pot kind of idea. But then what happens is when you make finances the fundament, then anyone who's draining those finances becomes your enemy. So who is that? That's the handicapped, special needs people. That's the elderly. I mean, they're not giving to the, the pot. They're taking from the pot. And oh, and then it's the gypsies and the people that you don't trust anymore because they're all of a sudden, you know, they're just stealing it all. Don't trust them. Well, all of this started, by the way, if you'll, and I don't even pardon me for saying it, I'm just going to flatly say it, by Darwin, because it was Darwin that said that everything was a super race. There was, everything has a higher calling and a lower calling. And that super race was that everything else is going to die off. 
It was just an issue of who was going to decide who the super race was. Well, obviously, nobody decides that somebody else is the super race and they're not. It isn't like, I've decided you should kill me because you're the super race and I'm inferior anyway. And of course, what the Nazi platform jumped on was this idea of eugenics is what it's called which, by the way, was the original name for the origin of species. It was included in the original title, was the idea of a superior race or eugenic race. And he says, well, then let's just sort of help things out. Sir Favolo the fittest, baby, you're not fit, I'm going to kill you. Well, it was interesting how that always seems to work its way to the Jews. The Bible makes that really clear. But you say, well, how does, if there's a loving God, how could there be such a horrible thing as a Holocaust? My response is, if man is so good, how could there be something as horrible as a Holocaust? God didn't step in and say, I'm going to kill all the Jews. Man stepped in and said, I'm going to kill all the Jews. And the, and the whole idea of it is, man is as evil as you let him be, and society will dictate the limits. If in Amsterdam drugs are legal, people are going to drug up all over the place. And it's the clean needle parks. You know, it isn't about people getting delivered from these things. It's about people just getting a clean needle so that they don't share it with someone and AIDS doesn't spread. That's the idea. If prostitution is legal, it will be rampant. It isn't like if you legalize these things, they mellow out. They become worse. Because man is as evil as you let him be. And, you know, it's amazing because people will even blame ourselves on that. We'll blame ourselves on being late. And, and another one is, of course, how much we drink or how much we fight. Well, you know why we fight. I'm Irish. Like that's No, actually, because you're human and you're evil. That's why you fight. I don't believe I'm Irish, and I fought all the time. And in all of that, understand, now we've got a new king, which means we've got a new kingdom. And with that new kingdom comes a new set of priorities. And with that new set of priorities becomes a new set of standard of what's right and wrong. And that's what he gives us now. Now, this is what becomes so fascinating, is notice the order that God gives us here. It is completely the opposite of the old kingdom that this world is ruling under its sway. Because the Bible tells us that the entire world is under the sway of the evil one. That's the kingdom of darkness. And this world manifests in a kingdom of darkness. We come into this thing with a brand new kingdom, and there's got to be a brand new set of priorities and a brand new set of standards. Now, look at what it says. Wives, husbands, fathers, and children, bond servants, and masters. Now, wait a minute. Look at that again. Wives and husbands, childrens and fathers, children and fathers, workers and bosses. Look at the order. It is completely the opposite of the order we get today. And this is how I can tell you that. 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, and even in some places around the Mediterranean today, the fundamental value system starts with the family. But now you went to school. When you started going to school, how much of it was about you being a better husband or wife? You're going to grow up and you may get married someday. How much of it was about you may be a, a parent someday, you know, and, and, and so you, you might want to learn what it's like to be a good mom or a good dad. Everything is about the opposite. It's the other way around. It's you first, your career, and then maybe if you're tired of it or you're subtle in it, maybe then you can get married and have kids. But if you put it in that order... A wife or a husband and children get in the way of your career. When you talk to people, it's like, why did you wait to get married till you were 30-something? Because, oh, I got in the way of my career. What was first? It wasn't children. It wasn't a wife or a husband. It wasn't family. Beloved, it was you. You were first. And if you were first, your career should come first. Man, don't, 
Don't let anybody compromise that. You find somebody that can actually just let you live your career, live your dream. But God says, you've got a new kingdom, you've got a new king with a new society, and that new society dictates a new standard, and here's where it starts with a husband and wife. That's my first priority. And isn't that what he says here? If you're going to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him, then then everything should be under the dominion of my new king. And if it's under the dominion of my new king, well then let's start with where it really hits. Our priority first is the husband and wife. Is it any surprise to us why husbands and wives are completely, marriages are completely shattered today? Because it's such a secondary or tertiary thought because it's not primary. I mean, people are like, look at the good news is I still have my career. I've gone through six wives to get through that career, but the good news is I still have my career. I've got my, I've got my 401k. I've got my retirement. But then you, you're 55 or 60 and you wake up in a bed alone. And you can't roll around with the queen just because she's on a, a dollar bill or a pound note. And all of a sudden you realize, what good is this? If you've ever seen a person who's made so much of that on their deathbed, man, they trade it all. Because the kids haven't talked to them in 10 years. And they don't have, I mean, they, they don't have a wife anymore. They don't have a husband anymore. Because when you start facing eternity, none of that stuff really matters anymore. God starts to look and he says, no, wait a minute. You realize none of this is going to agree with you because you are so deeply steeped in the world's kingdom. But this new kingdom has got to be different. This new kingdom has got to be so opposite that when people look at you, they go, what in the world? So he goes, so listen, wives, let's start with you. I'm going to tell you what's not natural for you. Husbands, I'm going to tell you what's not natural for you. Because everyone has a tendency. Because our tendencies were shaped. I mean, we were already evil. All our society did was just help us manifest what kind of evil we want to be. I was born this way. Yeah, you were born a sinner. So was I. I was born violent. Well, you can't find a gene for that. You can't find a gene for anything along those lines because it's a spiritual DNA. Well, I just want to be, I have a right to be who I was born to be. Yeah, well, then I have a right to be who I was born to be. I was born violent. I should have the right to beat the heck out of you. Or you have a right to be what God created you to be, to be reborn to be. I I tell you what, if I was going to be the person I was born to be, I would never have gotten married and I would never have had children. Because that just is proof that the buck stops here. Listen, wives. Uh oh. Why does he have to start with us? Notice it doesn't say, husbands, tell your wives to submit. Because God knows what trouble that would cause. <laughs> you could always say, God, tell your wife to submit. <laughs> I'll wait here and watch this one. Now, don't worry. Here's the good news I will pick on every one of us before we're done. You need to go back to Genesis chapter 3 for a moment. And you need to see why this is such a problem. And by the way, the Christian world has catered to it too. When they said, ooh, she's gonna, ooh, she's gonna, well, wait a minute, excuse me here. 
You really, you know, I, 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 I finally got my wife down on her knees. Got her on her knees. Well, well, really, what'd you do? Well, she was telling me, come out from the bed so I could finish my talk with you. I was underneath it hiding. In chapter 3, verse 16, our first 316 in Scripture, God doesn't say, this is how I'm going to punish you. God says, this is what your world's going to look like now that it's fallen. I'll gladly multiply your sorrow and your conception. Multiply your conception, what does that mean? Well, now it's nine months. Have a nice day. By the way, for what it's worth, it's 40 weeks. And 40 tends to be a number of proving, of testing. Yeah, in pain you'll bring forth children. Yeah, those that are mothers are like, mm, I feel this. You know, it's sort of like guys when they watch certain things where guys get hit. Sometimes they're like, oh, you know, start talking about childbearing. The mothers are like, oh, like, know how you feel. And so far, the guys can kind of look at it, but then it says this: your desire will be for your husband. Oh, this sounds so good because this sounds like my first impression of that is you're gonna look at your husband and go, ooh, baby. Like little Kenny G's playing in the background. Oh, that would be so nice. But this is a fallen world. We can't expect that there. Because it says, because then God says, but he's going to have to rule over you. Oh. The word is tishika. Ladies, could you say tishika? Okay, now, you could go, well, okay, so wait a minute. So your desire is going to be for your husband, but he's going to have to rule over you. Well, let me just say, before we even define the word, because it'll define, even in its context, go to chapter 4, verse 7. Because the word, it's the next time the word is used. And chapter 4, and I love to give this, by the way, in premarital, so if you, uh, you need to know that you're in for this, if that becomes the case. Uh, chapter 4, verse 7, God speaks to Cain. And he says, Cain... Sin lies at the door. Its desire, there's the same word, is for you. But you're going to have to master it. Notice in both cases, it's the first of a double-stated clause. And it's a clarion call, by the way. Here's the idea. Something desires, but the other thing is going to have to rule instead. Now, what's really sad is how Cain steps out of this. I mean, if I called, you know, and said, hey, I was on the 46 and I happened to be driving by your house and I happened to notice there was a lunatic outside your house with a knife and it was clear his desire is for you, what part of you thinks, maybe I'll just go outside and, and have a little fun? <laughs> it's desires for you, but you're going to have to take it down. Now, here's the problem. What he says is, no, understand, hear me out. God initially made a woman as a helper. Now, you don't have to like that, but it's what God said. The first time he introduces a woman, she's not even on the stage. He says, I want to make a helper for you. Now, a helper in a saved world, listen, a helper in a saved world wants to help. That sounds reasonable. See what the need is. How do I come alongside what's lacking? What, what's on the fringe that I could help roll up a little bit? But you unsave a helper, and they become the dominator. It's like, oh, forget it, I'll just take it over. And what God says is, I want to warn you, this is what it looks like in a fallen world. What it looks like in a fallen world, and all you have to do is watch your mom and dad drive a car. Because when you watch the mom drive the car, when you watch the mom drive the car, it could go up on the curb, it really doesn't matter, whatever. And the, and the husband might turn around and say something like, hey, next time, you know, and they'll park, and I'm not saying every woman drives like this, but just, I'm using extremes. 
And you know, she'd like pull up in the car, still balancing on the parking block when she pulls the emergency brake. And at the end of it all, he'll be like, let's, you know, the father may say something like, next time, let's try not to kill all of the school children on the way to the school. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. Yeah, but that's about all he'll do. You take the man and you put him in the steering wheel, steering behind the steering wheel, and you put the wife next to the, on, in the passenger side, all of a sudden a whole new set of options pop up in the passenger side. There's the imaginary break at the floor. <laughs> There's the imaginary pillar to hold up the roof. And it's like, oh, <laughs> And I'm convinced if you look at Volkswagen, there's a handle above the window. I'm convinced it's made for a wife when she's driving, she's next to the husband. She can hold on to something. There's got to be something. What's that? You look out for the keys to go. What is that about? The word tishikah means a desire to control. Oh, no. A desire to control. I, can, can we go back to the Kenny G thing? Because that was all right. A desire to control. And that becomes the problem, beloved. And so, look at the media today. What I mean, if you look at a married couple, what is it? He's an idiot. He's an absolute oaf. But good thing the wife said, because she's the savior of the home, because she's smart enough that once she finally takes control of things, we can fix this problem within a half hour so we can get you off and get to the next program. You know, the guy's like still figuring out, I mean, scratching his armpits and sniffing. That's like where he's at. And she's like, you know, I'm, I'm, and she's like, she just got that look at her face like, mm, all right. And listen, the older you get, it isn't like this changes. You just learn how to do it better. You know, and even, by the way, it, it tells us that the Lord can govern with his eyes. Now, unless you're married, you may not even know what that means. <laughs> Man, once you get married, and I'm not trying to pick on anyone. You know what it's like for the wife just to go. <laughs> and then, and this is the best part. And then she'll say, I didn't say anything. Oh, no, you said a lot. You didn't speak anything. Mm-mm. And if, if you really want to underline it, you put that. Mm? I still didn't say anything. And here's the point, is in the end of it, and, and it's subtle. Because if the husband, now listen, God never gives authority without responsibility. And men, why I think one of the reasons men are like Peter Pan, and we'll get to that in a moment, is because, <laughs> is because we long for the day when we weren't responsible. Now, there's some cultures, which well, it doesn't matter. You're just not going to be responsible anyways. But, but it's like we long for the, but it's like God's like, I'm going to hold you accountable for your family. I'm going I'm to hold you accountable. Not your wife. And so you want to be, and I do believe wives want to be great wives, especially Christian wives, but there's still that unsafe part of you that really would love to. Mm? They're still grabbing the wheel. And, and then what happens is you can grab the wheel, run it into something, and then say, you driving. What do you mean? I was here. And then the guy's like, I, I've never met a situation that, like, wow, I, this, this is just, let's just aim for something soft at least. Now hear me out. In all of this, the Lord really, really is going to put something on you that you couldn't possibly do in the flesh. And I submit. I mean, why is it a woman's like, I, I just know where you're going to go with this. And, nah, I hate it. Well, of course you hate it. Because if your natural tendency is to want to control, well, then God says, let go. There's no part of the flesh that says, okay, that's a good idea. I'll let go, but I got a remote control. <laughs> I'm to make it look like I let go. There's nothing about submission that is weak. 
Because to me, showing submission shows great strength. Mm-hmm. Now the term upataso literally means to be appointed under. under, under. Now to be appointed under, believe, beloved, listen. We have the example in Jesus. We read that in the garden, Jesus three different times presented his case before the Father. So that tells me, since Jesus never sinned, that it's not a sin to present your case. But he ends with, not my will, yours be done. In the end of it all, someone has to have the final say. And what's amazing is how subtle that can be. I mean, you know, you're, you're newly married, a husband wants to please his wife, and he's like, where do you want to go to eat? And she said, well, you're the man, you're the leader, you go ahead and decide. Okay, well, I've decided to tell you, oh, no, not Italian, because, you know, we just had a couple of days ago. Chinese, oh, not, I don't like that Chinese place. I mean, and you go through about five of those, and then finally you're like, well, where would you like to eat? And they're like, well, I have this little place around the corner. And you go, well, then we'll go there. I'm so glad you're leading. You're like, leading? How, how did, somehow our definitions are a little different. But if the Lord says, look at it, do you realize what you argue over? I mean, I've, as uh, doing marriage counseling for over 20 years, I've sat with couples where she sabotaged a bookshelf because a man has this natural desire to discover. And one of the easiest ways to discover is to throw away the directions. I mean, think about it. Because then it's like, oh, I'm going to discover how to build this bookshelf on my own. And I'm going to discover how to get there without a map. And I'm going to, you know, and I'm not saying, again, see, no, I'm going to start picking on the men now. But in all of that, the wife's like, mm-mm, look it, this is the way it needs to be done. This is, this is the book. It's right here. It's, look it. They've, intelligent people wrote this. They've invented that bookshelf. They know how to make it. And then they're in my office arguing over it. I'm like, you guys are arguing over a bookshelf. You guys make six digits. If you ruin the bookshelf, you could buy another. Yeah, but that's just a waste. Yeah, you're right, it is. But here's the problem. If a man does something dumb, that doesn't mean it's necessarily sinful. But for you to run and riot on the thing, and you're actually appointing yourself over, that's sinful. That becomes the problem. What if this society looked like this? Now, that wouldn't look like weak women. What it would look like is women that are choosing to appoint themselves under because that's what God wants. And if he really is our king, we can't say no Lord in the same sentence. There you go. But then here's the good news. You're also not responsible for the decisions your husband makes in this sense. That if your husband makes a dumb decision, God isn't going to punish you for it. That's the good news. And he says, this is fitting. This is what I want. Now, if Jesus had chosen, look, you know what? I'm God too. I'm just as much God as you are, Father. Now, let me tell you what. I'm done with this. We would all go to hell. So aren't you thankful Jesus submitted? Did he have all the right to be God? Did he have all the right to pull the God card on the Father? Say, like, you don't understand. I've been God as long as you've been God. Do you understand? I know just as much as you do. I'm just as strong as you are. But he says, look at There are people in the balance. Ladies, can I just say, there are people in the balance. But we don't even have good examples of that. There are godly women that live the opposite of this. This isn't being mindless. This is being mindful. And in its simplest sense, listen, if the Lord is your Lord, then you already have submitted. And it's a lordship issue. And if the Lord is your Lord, the issue then is who's on top. And if the Lord is, then he has a right to set the thing. Men, time for us to go to the woodshed for a moment.
Do you know nowhere in Scripture it tells us that a wife's to love her husband with that agape, selfish love? God just assumed that he, that that may happen. He does tell you in regards to phileho, which means to befriend. Wives often may not befriend their husbands, and they'll tell us that in regards to older women or to teach the younger women what it's really like to be their husband's friend. Because often the opposite of a friend, believe it or not, is often competitor. And I've seen a lot of marriages where the older couple, where she's just busy competing. And you're like, ooh, man, don't learn from, learn. It's like, if you can't be an example, be a warning. But God, on the other hand, looks at the husband and he says, let me tell you what's not natural for you. What he says to the wife is, put your husband first. What he says to the husband is, put your wife first. Agape, in its simplest sense, listen, is selflessness. That's all it really is. Everything else hinges off of that clothesline. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love, this love, is selfishness. And he listen, he says, husbands, Ephesians, he tells us three times. Colossians, he'll tell us one more time. There, there are at least five different times in Scripture where God's going to say, husbands, figure this out. I know how thick you are. I'm going to have to tell you five times, love your wife. Put her first. Crawl into, and I've heard someone say the really the best definition of Jesus demonstrating love is he crawled into our world and he died there. And it's like real love crawls into another person's world and, and dies to themselves there. Now, ladies, you're not off the hook because it tells us to love one another. So, and that's that agape. So you're you don't just rely on to be selfish, man. Because you know <laughs> you can't be selfish and actually submit. And, and by the way, for what it's worth, just to make it even worse. In First Peter, it does say, be submissive. And the difference is, submit is an action, but be submissive is an attitude. So know that. So if you're not submitting in your heart, but you're going to, I'm just going to do it, but mm, look at you the whole time. God goes, that didn't work. No credit there. Now, with the men, he looks at the men and he goes, look it, this is, this is about you now. You, if you're going to, see, the Bible doesn't say you get to, that the wife represents Jesus in this. She gets to represent a faulty, flawed church. That's good news. Now, the man on the other goes, now, you're going to need to actually be Jesus to your wife. <laughs> you're like, there's no possible way. God goes, I know that. You know that. But I can do it through you. And there's no part of a man that's being taught, put another person first. You're never taught that as a child by your parents. You're never taught that in school. You know, there's going to be a day you're going to actually dote on a woman and not just like love her because of the way she makes you feel, but you serve her because she needs serving. And I'm going to hold you, I'm going to hold you responsible. Now, I'm only going to give you authority in this so that you can love. I give you authority so that you can actually lead this expedition. I've given you a mission and I want you on that mission. And then part of that is the world needs to see what a Christian home looks like. And a Christian home is not about the life wearing the pants and about leading things, but it's also not about you sitting on the couch and dictating. You can't lead anyone sitting down. A leader goes somewhere. And if you're going to lead, you better know where you're going. And I know where I'm going. I'm going where Jesus is leading me. That's where I'm going. It led us here, and I'm not regretting a moment of that. He says, listen, and then he tells us one other thing. Don't just love your wife. Love your wife, love your wife, love your wife, man. He says, don't be bitter. Now, funny, he doesn't say that to the wife either. I mean, he does say the word to forgive one another, so you're not off the hook there either. But he tells us, it's a natural tendency of a man to hold a grudge. Man, isn't this true? Now, I do believe this is one of the reasons why sometimes as we get older as men, we lose all our details. Have you noticed that? 
I mean, you watch you watch an older guy, and he's like telling a story. He's like, and sometimes the wife thinks that her responsibility is to be the Holy Spirit to her husband. First of all, she's going to make sure that she keeps him humble. By the way, it's not your job, ladies. Or that she's going to keep him on all the details. You know, be like, I remember it was back when I was 25. It was 26. Or whatever. And, and there we were in Philadelphia. Actually, it was Portland. Okay, it was in Portland. And in Portland, we were out at McDonald's. It was a burger. Okay, so we were eating out. And as they get older, what they do is they start to speak in broad generalizations. right? They're like, I remember when I was younger, it was somewhere other than here, and I was eating out. Because they know, at least with that way, no one's going to interject anything. Right? But I believe one of the reasons God starts fuzzying up all of that is because we could really hold a grudge. And a wife will go, what? What's your problem? Why are you responding with this? Because a lot of times a guy like takes in the nickels. He takes in the five pence, and all of a sudden the national debt gets poured on the wife, and she's like, what just happened? I don't, I'm, this, this is really an odd response for this little action. This is a little disproportional. And they go, well, where do you want me to start? I've listed it in alphabetical order and chronological. Where do you want to start? I remember when you, when you, honey, that was 15 years ago. Well, yeah, but you never asked for forgiveness. I think I did. And it's amazing how we could remember the offense, but not that moment of contrition. Now, look at, this is how far it goes, gentlemen. Jesus says, to the extent that you forgive is the extent that you should be willing to be, expect to be forgiven by me. So this is, in essence, what God says to the men. Men, you really don't have to forgive your wives as long as you're willing to go to hell for it. Because, yeah, that sounds really neat. Think about it. If you really, I mean, here's, here's, here I am trying to put on the Jesus for my wife, and then he looks, and then I go and stand before Jesus, and he goes, wow, you were really terrible with forgiveness. Let me show you what that looks like. And he's like, oh, I'm not going to forgive you. And then, praise God, he's more merciful than that. But nowhere in Scripture does it say that a wife can be a jerk and actually have a bad walk with the Lord for it. I mean, you kind of know that theoretically, but the Bible says, look, if you don't dwell with your wife with understanding, giving honor to her as the weaker vessel, even your prayers will be hindered. And you can see God go, don't come here and start chatting with me when you're going to misrepresent me like that in your household. He goes, look, this is my first priority. I haven't even gotten to workers yet. I haven't gotten, this is where it starts. It starts with everything because the bottom line is there's going to be a day your kids are going to grow up and in theory, they're going to move out of the house. In theory, <laughs> there's going to be a day where you just may not do your job anymore. Now listen, may the Lord kill me before that comes because I have no interest in retiring. And if I lose my mind, feel free to push me in front of a train because I really don't want to be the guy that's like the kooky pastor that now is preaching to the wall. Because, you know, we've talked about that. They'll put me in a nursing home. My wife will paint something with a guy with his hand raised in the back. Hey, I got saved today. Wow, I got saved yesterday, too. But it's like, look at the bottom. What part of, what part of, see, I'm one of those people that actually loves getting up to go to work, so to speak, because it's not work for me. I love to do this. But beloved, you're going to wake up one day and everything's going to clear. And you're either going to be unfamiliar with the touch of a stranger that happens to have shared your bed for the last how many years. 
You're going to wake up next to a friend that actually sees Jesus in you. Now, the most amazing thing is, if a wife's busy trying to control, she won't look for the Jesus in her husband. And if a man's busy not loving his wife, she's not going to see it anyway. And he goes, look it, if you're, gonna, if you're not going to forgive your wife, there's going to be something so far in between you, you won't have the opportunity to represent Jesus. There'll be no kindness in you. And God goes, let me ask you, before we go any farther, if that's your tendency is to hold the grudge, not yet. Some people are like, well, maybe I, I don't even know why I'm not married yet. Maybe because you're so busy being... And by the way, in the end of it all, a sinful person is, seeks independence. That's it. A man seeks independence. And, and by the way, a grudge is a very convenient way to become independent of your wife. A wife will seek independence, and to be seek to control is a very convenient way to seek to be independent. And the Lord says, I'm actually... I'm not teaching you you're just important individually. I'm not looking for you to have self-esteem. I'm looking for you to have God-esteem. And in having God-esteem, I want you to see how integral you are, not just individual you are, how integral you are in the family, how fundamental you are in that. Because you're part of a beautiful, big thing. Children, obey. For what's worth, the word obey, for what it's worth. Upaku ete. Aku, like acoustic, means to listen, to choose to be audience to. Upa means under. And this is going to become a really important word because the idea of it is what God says to children is children make a conscious choice to listen to your parents for the purpose of, of obeying them. Don't just say, well, I sort of heard a few things and I'm going to do it. I missed the not. That's kind of an important word. Or I missed, you know, it's like, look, and I want you to do this, and here's how you do it. I missed the whole here's how you do it, because I just, but I, I'm sort of obeying. No, you're not. And then he goes, God says, look at children. Someday you're going to be adults, and you're going to see how difficult this is on the other side. But you know what? God really, it's interesting. It's the only time he says here, well-pleasing. I mean, everything pleases him here when we obey his will. But he says, this is well-pleasing. Children get the opportunity to be well-pleasing to the Lord. And a child's tendency, individuality and independence. Give me independence. I don't care. I'm six. I'm walking away from them. We heard a story when we were in, in uh, Sicily about a man, two guys, two friends. They were seven years old. They were Ruthie's age. Seven years old. And both of their dads had a lover somewhere else. A woman somewhere else. And these seven-year-olds decided they were going to go to those other women and tell them and give them the what for. And it's Sicilian, so you got to imagine that's part of the problem. And the problem was one of them was in like Napoli or Milan, <laughs> which was a little far away from a Sicilian. But I mean, they were, like, they were, and one of those kids actually wound up going to the woman and just threatening her and doing all kinds of, you know, I can't imagine what it would be like for a woman open up the door she knows she's with a married man and this seven year old kid comes over and goes look at you getting in my day again <laughs> and man he was so proud of himself for that you know what think of the things that we think were great accomplishments as kids every accomplishment we think is great as a kid is something we did in our independence mm -hmm. and then the Lord says look at you can't do anything without me and you're like but everything I've been proud of is something I accomplished and when we get older isn't it the same 
But the Bible says any one of our things that we think we did is filthy rags in God's sight. Because what God wants is everything to be done with him. What you're saying is, look what I did without you. How could that bless him? Even if you think it's for him. God, I did all this stuff for you. God says, but you could have done it with me. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a relationship. I'm not looking for your accomplishment. Children, God really wants a world to see what it's like for children. And by the way, it talks about a godly man and a godly woman that the children rise up and call them blessed. And then he gets to the fathers. Notice it doesn't even mention mothers here. Because he holds a father responsible for this. And by the way, it's the only negative command in all of these as far as primarily negative. Fathers don't do this. It's just wives do this. Husbands do this. Children do this. But dads don't do this. So wait a minute. This is a man's tendency, a father's tendency. Don't provoke your kids, your children. The word pro for, provoke for what it literally means in a simple sense is agitate. Don't agitate your kids. But th this doesn't mean don't whoop them up by getting them to jump on the couch. Because obviously that doesn't take the one out of says. Because it says, lest they be discouraged. And I do love the word discouraged because the word is atomisin. And thumia, in a simple sense, means like vigor or even rage. It all depends on how it's with the context. But the idea is, you know, you've got that vim in you. And he says, look, don't agitate your kids in such a way that you take the wind out of their sails. That's the idea of this. Now, there are some cases where moms play the role of the dad too in this. Now, maybe that's why he plays that. But he goes, look it. God's not telling you to deflate your kids. He's not telling you to drain your kids. He's telling you to steal your kids. And there's a difference. They don't agitate them. And the word, by the way, comes from a root word which simply means to argue. Don't spend all your time being tense and terse and, and arguing with them because in the end of it, all you're going to do is deflate them. Now, here's the good news. is that I remember what it was like when, I, when my wife told me first that she was pregnant. And I'm like, I'm going to be a dad. I don't even, what model do I pull from? And the Lord led me to First Thessalonians. So here's the positive to that negative. Here's the instead of. Because God's not a God of nots. He's a God of instead ofs. In First Thessalonians 2.11, Paul says, You know how we exhorted and we comforted and charged you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. I went, hmm. Exhort parakaleho. Come alongside them to encourage them, to challenge them. Comfort paramatomia. And the word of this for what it's worth, or in this case, paramuthamai, like myth, like myth is the idea of relating to someone through another story. Para means to come alongside. Notice how those two both have the idea of coming alongside your kids, not dictating from afar, being among your children. And he says, come alongside them and relate to them. That's the idea of comforting. When you sit down and you're like, you know what? I really don't know what it's like for that, but I, but I know what it's like to hurt. And then he goes, and to charge? And this word, matarejo, is like, be a witness. And I realized, the Lord, when the Lord showed me that 14 years ago, he says, do you know anyone that's been like this in your life? And the only people that I can remember that have been remotely that were coaches, sports coaches, that came alongside. That, I mean, I had, really, I had some really good coaches. They may have known the Lord, I don't know. But I mean, they weren't just dictating from afar. They challenged me to the best, to be the best I could be. The only area that I knew at that time that anyone was challenging me to really test my limits. And they're like, you're going to get hit. Now get up and let's see you walk this one off. Let's see you shake this one off. Let's go. And I tell you what, I sincerely did things I never thought were possible to do. Because someone was alongside me saying, well, let's do this. Let's run that extra mile. Let's do it. Let's see, let's see if you can run. Let's see if you can run it faster. Let's see if you can run faster than me, pal. And I go, wait a minute. I could just be my kids' coaches? 
And God says, how does that sound to you? And I'm like, yeah, and this is before I be, and I, I had a friend who told me, look at, when, when your wife gets pregnant, you're not a dad yet, but your wife becomes a, your wife becomes a mother the moment she conceives. You become the husband of a psychotic woman until the child is born. You mean, just be aware of that. And, and, and the reason he said that, and I'm not saying that to pick on my wife because that's not the case at all. She actually desired normal things to eat. Because he said, they're going to have very different things that, you, that they're different than the wife you once knew. Get over that. But the moment you hold that child, you become a daddy. And so here I am before that, and I'm like, okay, I can be a coach. I, can, I, I think I can be a coach. I think I can come alongside them and challenge them, encourage them in court, and just be there and, and cry with them if that is what, what's needed or whatever. And then I held that girl in my hands, and I had a love that I never knew before in my life. And all of a sudden I went, oh, I, I can be a dad. I can do that now. Uh, and it's like, well, the other stuff was just to get me here. And, this, and if you're going to be that, don't argue with them all the time. And I know what that's like even for coaches to argue and go, what do you think that was? What kind of sissy? And there are times where there's a challenge to say, look at you've got more in you than that. And I know you've got more in you than that. And go out there and give what you have, not what you don't have. And I think we all need that, don't we? Because part of this is about being lazy. And we're going to see that in a moment. We're wrapping this around here, believe it or not. But in this, it's sort of like, look at if we live in a consumer world, and that's the kingdom we live in, give as little as you, as you possibly can and get as much as you possibly can. That's the world we live in. Well, then there's no part about doing anything excellent. Because, man, dads, don't argue with your kids all the time, but be their coach. Be with them and challenge them to greatness, to walk a, a life that's worthy of Christ. And you know what's really cool? That's the role of a pastor. Because Paul said, that's the way I treated you. And that's a, he said that to a Thessalonian church he pastored for a period of time. A small period, but nonetheless. And then from afar, by correspondence. It's like, look, at that's my challenge to you. And we'll see that here in the text. So fathers, don't make your, your kids, don't deflate your kids, steer them. Let them know that they were born for greatness. They were born for something so far beyond themselves that only God could get the glory for it. And let me just say, you were reborn for greatness. You were reborn in such a way that God intends to make you great. Don't do shoddy things and then say it's for an awesome God. David said, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And there's so much in my life I ask, wait a minute, how much of what I've given to God was nothing? It cost me nothing, no sacrifice, no anything. And then say, God, be blessed with this. Okay, last two roles. Now that we've worked out the family, father, husband, and wife first, and then dad to child, child to dad. Opposite order. Now let's talk about workers and bosses. No matter whatever it is, know who your boss is. Obey in all things. By the way, for what it's worth, if you're working and there's someone that you're going to call boss in whatever way, the word obey is the same word that is used with children obeying their parents. Remember the word aku? aku and the idea of it is to listen for the purpose of obeying. Upakuo. Give good attention and listen that you would actually follow through with the intent of performing. And he goes, bond servants, don't just do that when they're watching. Do it because the one boss you serve is always viewing you. And I think we all know what it's like to say, and, and, and people even do the bumper stickers, right? Jesus is coming, look busy. You know? And we got that mindset because that's what we do with our bosses. Your boss is coming, look busy. But it's, it, it isn't like my kids are like, ooh, dad's coming, look busy. They're like, 
when, when my children are like, my dad, you know, my dad is coming, Ruthie runs to four or five steps up because she knows when I walk in, even if my hands are full, she's going to want to jump from that step so I can catch her. There's no looking busy in that. Just look for daddy and be ready to attack him when he gets in. I love that. You can't, you can't, there's nothing I could buy on earth that could compare to that. Nothing I could accomplish or amass on earth that compares to that. The kids call me daddy. I have a 13-year-old daughter who holds my hand when I walk down the street. There's nothing like that. That is precious. And there is nothing I own. There's nothing I could accomplish that could be more than that. But as a bondservant, man, learn from that. You serve one. And who you serve is your, is your king. And if you serve this king, whatever you do... <clears throat> By the way, for what it's worth, the word sincerity of heart is literally singleness. Don't be two-faced. Don't be double-hearted in this. The idea is simple. You've got one boss, serve him. And if nobody recognizes you on earth for it, and you're still working at what you think is the lowest job, and no one's elevating you at it, I mean, here's the strange part. You live in a world where you can pick your job. They didn't, but you do. You live in a world where you can pick your husband. They didn't. You do. And it was harder for them. You, it's like, look at if you, like, I don't know if I can submit to this man, then don't marry him. Boom, case closed. Because the bottom line is you're, you're consigning yourself to a world of sin. Man, if you can't love your wife, if you like, look at, I know that it's not natural, but I know Christ will love me through And if you can't do that, then don't marry her. But don't pretend like you're going to either. Don't break anyone's heart. But then you pick your job and then pick a job. Well, you're like, look at, I'm going to do my very best, but I'm going to do it under the Lord. Because if I'm going to do it under the Lord. Now, if I can't do it under the Lord, I shouldn't be working there anyways. And that's what he tells us in verse 23, no matter what you do. No matter what you do, do it heartily. And I love this word. So the word heartily, for what it's worth, is the word aplotis. Uh, well, that's the singleness. This word here is epsuke. Ek means out of. Suke, like psych, means out of your breath or out of your soul. It's the word we use, like psychology, it means soul, like to love the Lord with all your soul is the word suke, psych. And the idea is simple. If you're going to do it, you can say do it till you're out of breath. But beyond that, because you could just be overweight and that could be oh, still weak effort. But to do it out of your soul, you know what it's like to do something out of your soul. You know, when was the last time you did anything out of your soul? You know, you just did it with everything. And you, you did it until you just knew that was all I am. Because, man, what would be so sad is to see the reserve that never got spent because you were just busy trying to get the seed. And look, at he says, it doesn't say it, it, whatever you do in ministry, because to be honest, I've been around a lot of ministry. I can tell you there's a whole lot of ministry that has no soul in it anymore. And he says, no matter what you do, love your wife, love your husband, with all your soul. Love your children with all your soul. Teach them with all your soul. Serve your friends with all your soul. Put it in there. Whatever the service is, do it with your soul. Because the world needs to see people do things with their soul. And this is a soulless culture. Isn't it? It's soulless. And we were born again. Knowing this, no matter what you do, you're going to receive a reward for it. You receive an inheritance, you're children of the king. And that king did it with all his soul when he hung on that cross. There was no haphazard, well, that's good enough. Is this enough? I mean, Jesus never asked, Dad, exactly 
how little do I have to give to get them to heaven? It was everything. I mean, it was David when he was going to win the heart of Michal, Saul's um, daughter. He says, this is what I'm asking. I don't even develop that, but this is what I'm asking. And David says, well, if that's what you're asking, I'm going to give twice that because I'm able to. He could look at that woman and say, look at, I bargained for you and I paid just what I had to. No, that's not what he said. I mean, what woman feels, oh, that's so special. Happy Valentine's Day, honey. I bargained. You know what? I looked in my pocket. I had three pounds in my pocket, and this is the flowers I got with it because it's all I could. I have more, and I have more that's in, in, in superfluous and in abundance. But really, it's all I really. It was convenient. It was all. I, it was convenient. It was all I. I wasn't going to go back. You know, one door back to the house and get my wallet. This, this is it. I love you, Lord. I. I I'm willing to go to the ends of the earth for you. Lord, God, I'm willing to just take all of me. All of you, every bit of me belongs to you. And the Lord says, do this thing. But that's a little inconvenient. You know, I already have plans, and that's going to butt into my plans. I got lunch I'm going to get, and it's a really good lunch. <laughs> and it's, and God says, but you just said, take all of me. When was the last time you did something heartily? And heartily. You know, last time. I, I, I'm fearful that there's going to be a time where I can try to hit the switch and there's, and there's like, I haven't even realized that the power has been shut off to the mainframe for so long. I just haven't known it because I haven't even tried to hit the switch. You know, that would crush me. And all of a sudden you realize, wow, I've, I've not really ever loved my wife like I could or my children like I could or my board like I could. Because to be honest, I did it enough that other people thought it was good. I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't need you to tell me what's good. Because the competition in any sport I've ever played has never been against someone else. It's always been against me. I know what it's like to lose in a score but feel like I won because I gave everything. And I know what it's like to dominate on a score and feel like I never won. Because in the end of it all, it was like they laid down and I didn't do anything. I don't want that. And it's interesting, you stuck it right in the middle of all this. But look at you're gonna be repaid one way or the other. So masters, finally, if you're a boss, know you got one boss. You got a boss too, and you're gonna stand before him. And if you've got a boss and you're gonna stand before him, what are you gonna do about that? I mean, this is your Christian boss. What if Christian work was not shoddy work? What if Christian, I mean, somebody put a fish, people were trying to put a fish on their stuff because they knew that was the best business. Shouldn't it be? By the way, I believe if you put a fish or a dove on anything that sort of represents you, it should be able to say, I am willing to be inconvenienced without complaining. And that's what that says. Because, you know, it isn't just, I'm going to give you a little bit of a better deal. I'm not comparing it to the world. I'm comparing it to my Lord who gave everything, who hung naked on a cross when he forfeited everything. And Jesus didn't just say, well, you know, this is a little inconvenient, giving up all my glory to die on a cross for you. Couldn't I just beat Satan at a game of chess? I am smarter, you know. There's nothing at the cross but sacrifice. And there's, I feel like, and I'm closing this up here, but I do feel like a lot of times, 
my packaging is like things that say with real fruit juice would that maybe mean they put three drops of lemon juice in that I mean Mountain Dew says it's got now I don't want to pick on them but it says made with real fruit juice uh, it's it's neon what fruit juice is neon Christianity be like that like I'm packaging made with real fruit juice or based on a true story well yeah like the character had the same name and that's where you ended you know I mean you know what it's like and you're like you talk to the person you're like well that's really not my story but it's it's a nice story it's just not mine and it's like we live in a world where we can just package it and as long as we say almost it it's enough but our Christianity can't be that can it I'm made with real Holy Spirit I'm full of the Holy Spirit that's full of the Holy Spirit I wouldn't want to drink that. That's what it looks like. Selfishness, greed, avarice, with a little bit of bless your brother at the end, in Jesus' name. Now look it, here's the problem. We all can sit in here in agreement on this. We can all say, yep, no, that's what the word says. I do believe that's the Holy Spirit speaking. What are you going to do with it? Because this was not, he didn't just say, well, now that we got all the theory, good luck. He said, now, dads, what are you going to do? Now, husbands, what are you going to do? Wives, what are you going to do? Workers, what are you going to do? Bosses, what are you going to do now? This is what I say. No, this is practical now, isn't it? This isn't just theory now. This is practical. 2,000 years ago, and it's just as pertinent today as it's ever been. He knows we're lazy. Why does he take bond servants? Do it! Because he knows we're lazy. And then we're like, Lord, oh, look at this great gift. And God goes, what? You wouldn't even, you know, it's like, you're going to draw me a beautiful art thing and all you found was a convenient pencil and all your other art stuff was tucked away and you wouldn't go upstairs to get it. I mean, that's that's it? Wow, that's really beautiful. And you, and you we expect because it's like, we, we think because our dad's so gracious we could be lazy. And I'm just going, well, okay, yeah. Oh, bless your heart, you didn't try, but it's it's something. But the Lord knows as we grow, it's like, look at where's our excellence. Now, I'm not saying this to condemn us. I'm saying this because what would it be like if we did live excellent for the Lord? I mean, what would happen? What would happen to our neighborhood? What would happen to our, our workplaces? I mean, I, we would probably be radically persecuted. And we would probably be, people would go, I just don't get you. You're really different. You go, yeah. And then we have the opportunity to bring Jesus into it. So look at this. We go to prayer. There's a new king with a new society with a new set of standards, and here they are. But listen, you can't do any of this, nor can I, unless you first surrender to that king and his kingdom. He paid the price for you on the cross. He died for your guilt, filth, and shame. Mine too, and then he rose again. The dying part got rid of who you were. The raising again part offers you the new you. The new you that can do this, because it's God who does it through you. It says it is God who works within you to will to do and to do for his good pleasure. And so I want to pray for us. I want to pray for me. If you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, you're going to have the opportunity right now because I would never not give you that opportunity as long as I'm sane. But if you have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, it is time to take the step up. The Lord's not looking for red shirts. Now, if you don't know what that means, that's the guy who made the team but sits on the bench. Every one of us are called to the field. And we all, listen, we all have the potential to be a starter, to be the key player. 
in whatever position he chooses to put us in. Will you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you so much for this, this beautiful, beautiful text. There's no part of our flesh that's going to agree with it. That's, that's understandable. I mean, we know that there's reasonable things within it. But there's no part of our flesh that applauds it. But this flesh is supposed to be laid down, Lord. You showed us that at the beginning of this chapter. So that you can make us someone new. And you say, in this new culture, people come first. To a husband, a wife comes first. To a wife, a husband comes first. To a child, a parent comes first. To a parent, a child comes first. To a worker, their boss comes first. To a boss, the worker comes first. Because in every bit of this, we submit ourselves to a Lord who is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And so God, I pray for more than just a theoretical acknowledgement. I pray for lives being changed right now. We all, I openly confess I do not have the strength, the power, the wherewithal in and of my own flesh or person to do any of these things. But I am not a person of that old kingdom anymore. I have been adopted by the King of Kings, by the Lord of Lords, by the Master of all the universe. And you've placed within me, the moment I said yes to you, your Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 1.13. And it is you who works within me the will to do and to do for your good pleasure. So I want to pray right now, Lord, if there be any or, or, or more that have never accepted the gift of Jesus, your son, or aren't sure if they have right now. Lord, let them walk out of here sure. And I'm going to pray a simple prayer. I'm going to renew my vows. You're welcome to do the same. And as you listen to this prayer, if you agree with it, I ask for you to, to heartily say amen. And what you're saying is, that's my prayer, God. Let that be my prayer. Let those words be my words. I am in agreement. God in heaven, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I know that my sin separates me from you, my guilt and my filth and my shame. But Lord, you as a righteous king must punish all wrongdoing. But I believe you've punished all my wrongdoing on the cross of your only begotten son, Jesus the Christ, who died on the cross for my sins and not his because he had none. And he paid for me completely there but then rose again to offer me a brand new life, a life abundant, a life where I could actually make other people first, a life where I could be a blessing instead of a curse, a life where I could be an encouragement and not a discouragement. And so I accept this gift of Jesus, this ransom for my soul, this payment for my guilt, confessing him as my Redeemer, my Savior, my Lord, as I surrender to you, adopt me as your own, Father. Make me part of your kingdom now. And in, in, you have the rights to my reinvention. So be the architect and reinvent me in a way that brings you pleasure and glory and brings the world life. And I surrender to you now, if you agree on it, and say, in the name of Jesus, as I approach you in that name.